Hello, welcome to the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast, where it is all about helping amazing physicians just like you create a wealthy life free from burnout and with the financial security to practice medicine on your own terms. I'm your host, Dr. Elisa Zhang. It's great to have you back for another episode of the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast. If you want to build your wealth, you'll need to invest your money. So let's talk about investing. The reason to invest money is to get your money to work for you. If your money isn't making money, then you'll always have to work for money. You want to develop some kind of investment plan for you depending on your financial goals. The first part of developing your financial plan is just setting those financial goals. For each goal, you want to determine how much you want to save and what types of account you want to use. You'll also need to determine the appropriate asset allocation for each goal, depending on your timeline to meet that goal. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the goal of financial freedom or retirement, because everyone's going to want to stop working eventually, or there's going to be some time where you're no longer able to work at some point in your life, so you might as well plan for it. Back to investing. When you really break it down to the basics, most investing at its core is investing in equity in a business or investing in debt. You can also look at investing as buying something that you hope will increase in value. The most common investing people know about is investing in the stock market. When you buy a stock, you're actually buying a small piece of a publicly traded company. Really, you're purchasing a little bit of ownership in a business. And as that company grows, and becomes more valuable, then your ownership is worth more. The price of a stock is based on the company's perceived value. Unfortunately, it's a little hard to determine a company's actual value at any given time. This is what causes all the price fluctuations with stocks. When you're buying a bond, you're actually giving a loan to the bond issuer. So if you buy a bond from a company, you're lending money to that company for them to use as they see fit, hopefully to invest into their company to grow more. Companies raise money by either selling equity in their company, which they can do in the form of stock, or by borrowing money. They can borrow money from a bank, or they could borrow money from the general public by issuing bonds. Usually people will have a portfolio of both stocks and bonds. While there are some people who buy individual stocks, most people buy mutual funds in order to get instant diversification. Other than government savings bonds, most people don't really buy individual bonds. You can also buy equity in companies that are not publicly traded. This is essentially what venture capitalists do. They bring in capital into small companies in exchange for equity, and the company uses that capital to grow larger. So you may be thinking, well, what about real estate? When you're truly investing in real estate, you're still investing in a business. A real estate property is a business with income in the form of rent and expenses like insurance and maintenance, And hopefully there are also profits. If you're investing in an apartment complex, then the management of that apartment complex and its ability to produce cash flow is more important than how nice the building is. If you're buying a duplex to rent out, it's really the same as the apartment complex, only on a smaller scale. If you want to make money from the investment, it should run like a business. To decrease the risk of investing, you want a diversified portfolio meaning you'll want to be invested in a wide variety of businesses. With stocks and bonds, that's easy to do with buying mutual funds. With the purchase of a single share of a total stock market in its fund, you now own a tiny portion of every publicly traded company in the United States, which is over 3,000 companies. 
Each one of these companies is full of people working together to make a profit. Some of these companies could fail, losing even 100% of their value, while other companies will be insanely successful and become worth multiple times what they were worth when they started out. There's really no limit on the upside, and a company can grow thousands or even tens of thousands larger than when they started. While each individual company has a different financial outlook, the valuation of the stock market as a whole has its ups and downs, and it can be a wild ride. While the stock market may not go up every month or even every year, but if you look over the trend for decades, it does continue to rise. Market crashes are inevitable. Some last for months and some last for years, but the market has always recovered. It's not possible to time the market and no one's been able to do it successfully consistently. So the best thing is to stay in the market all the time. What makes this especially true is that there are a few days during the year where the stock market makes significant changes. And if you miss those days, you can miss a significant increase in valuation. Many people want to sell when the market is going down because they see their stocks losing value. You don't actually lose money when your stock funds valuations go down until you actually sell. That's when it becomes a realized loss. And the companies associated with the stocks are still producing and they're still growing and they still have value. So when the market's down, it really means you're able to buy these stocks on sale. You don't want to invest money in the stock market if you're going to need it in the near future. Generally, you want to invest money in the stock market that you don't need anytime soon, hopefully with a timeline of 10 or more years. So we talked about the financial goal of financial freedom or retirement. And even if you're within 10 years of retirement, you're still going to likely have decades of life in retirement for which you want your money to continue to work for you. Even if you retire at age 65, there's a possibility that you could live to age 95, which means that your retirement portfolio still has to last another 30 years. That means it's long enough that you still want to have a significant amount of your portfolio in stocks, even at retirement. So what's a good asset allocation for when you're investing for retirement? People have very differing opinions on this. If you read The Simple Path to Wealth, J.L. Collins will tell you to put everything into VTSAX, which is Vanguard's low-cost total stock market index funds. If you read other people, they'll tell you to have a mix of U.S. stocks, foreign funds, and bonds, and some will also add in commodities. A portfolio of 80% stocks and 20% bonds has a similar performance to a portfolio of 100% stocks, but the portfolio with bonds will have a smoother ride than the fully 100% stock portfolio. For investing for retirement with a 20 to 30 year horizon, the Morningstar Lifetime Allocation Indexes recommend somewhere between 53 and 57% in US stocks, 26 to 36% in foreign stocks, 7 to 13% in bonds, and 4 to 5% in commodities. As you get closer to retirement, the amount of bonds starts to increase and the amount of stocks decrease. Then as you approach actual retirement, you do want to have some cash so that you have money to spend. There are a lot of reasonable asset allocation ratios that are all good for retirement. And what is best for you will depend on a lot of different factors. But the number one is how comfortable you are with it. If you're interested, you could actually spend a lot more time learning about it and lots of books reading about it. Or you could just pick one asset allocation and just stick with it. 
But for now, why don't we move on? Let's actually talk about how to choose which mutual funds to invest in. So remember, a mutual fund is a collection of stocks and bonds. There are actively managed mutual funds, as well as what be, could be called passively managed funds or index funds. An actively managed mutual fund is going to have a fund manager and a team of people who are actively selecting what stocks and bonds to buy for this mutual fund. Because of that, active mutual funds have significant fees involved. The people running the fund want to be paid, and all those transactions cost money, which add to the expenses of the fund. There may be even other expenses like marketing fees. Index funds were created by Jack Bogle in the 1970s. He hypothesized that it's actually hard to beat the market. So instead, if you could just own the whole market and keep your expenses low, you'd likely be better off. He took his thesis and started Vanguard, which created the very first index fund. The Vanguard S&P 500 fund bought shares of every company that was in the S&P 500 index, or the 500 largest capitalized companies in the United States. 50 years later, we can see that his hypothesis was correct and that index funds have become the way to go. It's not that it's impossible to beat the market. It's just that it takes a lot of time and expertise, and it's expensive to do all that analysis that's required. Once you account for all those extra costs and fees, then it becomes difficult to beat the market. There are index funds for every asset class and low-cost, well-managed index funds available from several brokerage firms. Vanguard continues to be a favorite. And to compete, Fidelity has even made zero expense ratio index funds. When investing, it's very important to be mindful of these fees because every fee paid will take away from your return. The expense ratio is the cost of running the fund divided by the assets in the fund. The expense ratio of an actively managed mutual fund ranges from 0.5% to 2%, though some funds could even be higher. Compare this to index funds where the average expense ratio is 0.2% and Vanguard's index fund average expense ratio is 0.06%. And I already mentioned that Fidelity has 0% expense ratio index funds. Some actively managed funds have a load fee, which means you pay a commission when you buy them. The load can be a front load, which is paid when you buy the fund, or it can be a back load, which is paid when you sell the fund. There are also ongoing load fees where you pay each year in the form of higher expense ratios. These load fees are how mutual fund sellers, sometimes calling themselves financial advisors, are paid. Some mutual funds have a marketing fee, which is called a 12B-1 fee. Even if you're buying an actively managed mutual fund, I would avoid any fund that has a low fee or a marketing fee. Costs matter a lot when investing, and those costs compound just like your investing returns compound. So let's say you invest $20,500 a year into your 401k or 403b, which is the maximum for 2022. And you do this for 30 years at an 8% return in index funds with a 0.2% expense ratio. Then at the end of 30 years, you're going to have $2,457,097. Let's say you use a financial advisor who charges a 1% asset under management fee. He then goes about and picks mutual funds with an average of a 1.2% expense ratio. Now at that same 8% return, you'll actually only have $1,655,000 $935 after 30 years, which is one third of the money less than if the fees were 
just the index funds with the 0.2% expense ratio. And that shows just how much these expenses can really affect your returns. I mean, in this case, it's over $800,000. So time really plays a huge role with compound interest as well. I want you to compare these three investors. So Sarah invests $5,000 a year between the ages of 25 and 35, so that in total, she's only investing $50,000. After the age of 35, she never puts any money in, but by the time she hits age 65, she'll actually have $602,070. Contrast that to Bob, who invests $5,000 a year, but doesn't start doing it until age 35. He puts in $5,000 every year between age 35 to age 65. So in total, he's invested a total of $150,000. When he gets to age 65, he has $540,741, which is less than Sarah had, even though she only invested $50,000 and he invested $150,000. Now let's take Kim, who invested $5,000 a year for the full 30 years between the ages of 25 to 65. So Kim actually invests the most. She invests $200,000, but now at age 65 has $1,142,811. So yes, it only takes $5,000 a year for 30 years invested in the stock market to become a millionaire. In summary, most investments are purchasing equity in a business or loaning money to a business. Buying stocks and bonds in the form of low-cost index funds is the easiest way to have a fully diversified portfolio. I know this was a lot of information, but I hope it was helpful for those of you who are still new to investing. There'll be plenty of other episodes that explore more about investing in the future. My goal is to empower you to be confident in making good investment choices. If you got something out of this episode, please share it with others so that we can all get the financial education we need to live the life that we want. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a review. It really helps get the word out. And now the disclaimer. I am not a certified financial professional, and this show is really just for your education as well as your entertainment. I'm also a physician, but I'm probably not your physician. So if you need any medical advice, please consult your own physician. Thank you.